Take your Bibles with me and go to 2 Samuel 23 tonight. Have you ever heard the phrase, famous last words? Yeah. Famous last words. Now, some people, when they hear that phrase, they think of maybe someone who is either very well known, uh, who is dying, or maybe even someone who is wealthy. Uh, sometimes people will think of uh, people on death row who make a smart aleck remark right before, right before they uh, pass away as their famous last words. But most of us, when we hear that phrase, we might think of someone who is very close to us, someone who is someone, maybe one of our closest friends or our family who has passed away and their last words of either instruction to us or, or, or uh, even words of comfort as we know that they're, where they're going when they pass into eternity. Tonight, we're going to look at the first portion of, of 2 Samuel 23, and it is a recounting of David's last words before he dies. And in it, we find some key, key, key truths of how God told him to lead and the mercy that he found in God's leading of him. So let's read together the first seven verses of 2 Samuel 23. The Bible says, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as a light of the morning, when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me with made made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and a staff of a spear that they can that they shall utterly uh, shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. What I want us to see here tonight is is obviously David is a king and he's talking about his ruling over all of these people. None of us are in that position tonight. Uh, but we do see here key things that we can take away and apply to our own lives when it comes to godly leadership. Uh, oftentimes we would read over this and we, and we would think uh, when we get to verse 3, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling the, in the fear of God. And we might be quick to point the finger maybe at our, at our presidential uh, areas and, and all of our Congress and Senate and the House of Representatives. We might be quick to point the finger there, but that's not the direction the Lord's having me go tonight. It is very easy to point the, the finger at the world and tell them that you should fear God. But the fact is, is that we should not be surprised when the world acts like the world. 
what we need to do is we need to start pointing the finger back at us and saying we as the church need to act like the church. And so tonight, where is your focus placed? Because where your focus is placed is how you will lead. Is your focus placed on the fear of the Lord? And tonight, as we look at these last words of David, we're going to find the foundation for godly leadership is the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we look at these these final, honest, uh, transparent words uh, that came uh, to us by, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for moving upon David to write these words and that we have them here tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd use them to instruct us in righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You notice that it takes almost the first three verses to introduce what he's getting to. He goes on with an introduction, and, the, and, and God leads him to do this. God is, God is very much, for our own instruction, leading us through this. I want you to notice how these last words of David are introduced. Verse 1, it says, Now these be the last words of David, David, the son of Jesse. Now you tell me, as we've gone through First and Second Samuel, normally when that name is brought up, it is brought up in what type of sense? It's, t- it's brought up in a derogatory sense towards David, as uh, you are low, you are absolutely a nobody. But here, I want you to notice that, that the Lord chooses these words through David and, and builds them in with a conjunction to the next phrase in order to give God all of the glory. Look at this. It says, David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high. Praise the Lord. David knew that it wasn't, he did not get himself where he was. God placed him there. And if you look back just one chapter to chapter 22, in verse 34, you remember that he says this. He says this about God. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon the high places. It was God that raised him up on high. God was the one that did that. Notice the next thing he says. He says, the anointed of God, of the God of Jacob. David was not, he was anointed by God. He wasn't anointed by himself. He wasn't anointed by a mere man, Samuel. He was anointed by God. That was God who had given him that unique, empowering, and enabling to do what God wanted him to do. And then he, he, he mentions at the end of verse 1 what God had enabled him to do. He says, the sweet psalmist of Israel said. That is a gifting that God gave him. Maybe you're a sweet pianist or a sweet teacher, or a sweet leader. God's given you all abilities as well. He's anointed you with something to do, a purpose to do, a a way to live. And so God is the one that has given you that. God is the the one who has has raised you up on high in that that section. And and in in this portion of Scripture, he's saying God has done all of this. That's really important as we go into this verse 2. Because in verse 2, he talks about divine inspiration of what he, of what he is saying. He says, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. 
I believe that this indicates that David knew that he was being moved by the Holy Spirit of God, as it says in in First uh, Peter or Second Peter, chapter one, how the Holy Spirit of God moved upon those men uh, to write down those words uh, of Scripture. God, uh, David is indicating right here that he was aware of the work of divine inspiration, even in his own life, at least at, at some points, that God was the one having him to write this down. The God of Israel, verse 3, said, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. And then he gives this, this, these words. And I want you to imagine as he's giving these final words, uh, the, the phrase that we would use are... Uh, at least in in uh, common day, would be that dying men are honest men, and so those around him, if you can hear, uh, just just imagine with me, his deathbed. He's got his sons, probably Solomon there, any of the other children that are still alive, his wife, you know, some some people by him that are very dear to him. He's giving them this instruction, but also the Lord is having him write this down for us God says to us here tonight he that ruleth over men must be just ruling in the fear of God verse 4 and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth even a morning without clouds as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain here this is God's instruction for godly leaders God's instruction for godly leaders. As leaders today, mothers, fathers, teachers, disciple makers, friends, employers, pastor, we can apply these same principles to our lives. We're not, we're not ruling over one another. You're not ruling over people. I'm not ruling over God's heritage. That's, there's, a, there's a different sense of a relationship in each one of those but here we can take these principles and apply them and, and, and take these admonishments for godly leadership. Where your focus is placed is how you will lead. Take any one of those, and when you're focusing on self, you will be a selfish leader. You will end up uh, be, you will end up, Racked with insecurity. Sorry about that. I don't know if a clock. <laughs> That's okay. Not a problem. When 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 you are leading selfishly, you're thinking about what you want to get accomplished. I think of even in a classroom setting that I've been in. You know what you want the students to accomplish, and if that's all that you're focused on, that is going to be the end goal, and that is all that will happen. But when your focus is the fear of God, Lord, how can I honor you with what I am doing, whether I'm teaching, whether I am leading, whether I'm leading singing, whether I am preaching? If I am leading with the fear of the Lord, you will teach those who are you are leading that God comes first, no matter what. And you say, how, how, how do you... Uh, what's a simple example of that? Mr. Milligan, I know, has expressed with me he would share... A, a thing, uh, what was it called uh, right before you would teach your band students? We called it a success principle. A success principle, because you couldn't use, the, you know, the word God in the school, but, 
but it was a principle that was grounded in the fear of the Lord. <laughs> that was what you were trying to get across to your students. In my classroom, we would simply pray before each lesson. And, you, and yes, I taught in a Christian school, so it was a little bit easier there. But even in your leading of people, how ask yourself, how am I exemplifying the fear of God? How am I obeying these two things in my leadership that I must be just? That means you must do the right thing. You must be upright. And Proverbs talks much about that. But how am I exemplifying the fear of the Lord in everything that I do? How am I keeping the Lord first? How am I reverencing Him? Even before those that don't care anything about the Word of God, in what you teach, the material that you teach, in how you teach, in the way you go about it, do they know that God is first, that, God, that you fear God? The Bible tells us that the person who does this will be like what? Verse 4. It gives us two, two uh, uh, kind of word pictures. And David does a, a wonderful job at this. He says, And he shall be like the light of the morning. When the sun riseth, so what is that? A beautiful sunrise. I don't know if you've ever uh, done that. Sometimes I, if, if I get a quiet morning, I will uh, come from my house from behind the, the, the uh, pawn shop out by glass coffee shop overlooking the channel there, and that's where the sun will rise. And so it, it's, it's, he says, even a morning without clouds, when the, when the heavens are are painted by the Lord, and that sun is coming up over the water. It is absolutely beautiful. That's relaxing. It is refreshing. It is beautiful. It is quiet. It is clear. That is the type of person that God wants, and, and, and really, he, that's the person He wants to mold you into, is someone who is quiet, who is calm, who is relaxing, who is beautiful from the inside out. And then he says, the second, the second thing that he gives us, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. I don't know if you've ever went out and just smelled the air right after it's rained, and you see that clear sunlight and maybe a rainbow glare off, the, off of the grass. That, that, is, that is relaxing. It is fresh. It is life-producing. And that is, that is the kind of leadership that God wants each one of us to have. And you might say, well, I'm not really leading anybody. You are, whether you know it or not, whether you want to or not, your life is an example to somebody. And it is either producing death to the people around us, or it is producing this life-giving power that, that God is expressing to us through Scripture right here. This, this oasis that God wants godly leaders to be. So this is the instruction that God has given uh, for leaders. Now, obviously, the first application is, is being made to that of a ruler, a king. But I do believe a secondary application can be made to us as believers. Uh, the second point that I see is in verse 5. We see first God's instruction for godly leaders, but I want us to see God's faithfulness towards an imperfect leader. The first phrase of verse 5 can almost be a, a downtrodden. 
although my house be not so with God. We can almost think like, oh no, David, don't go back into the mire. Don't, don't get discouraged. Uh, he's, he's being honest. He knew that he was not a perfect reflection of that. He knew that his house was not ordered. He knew just by those that were around him, there were several people missing as he's giving these words. And it wasn't just because they couldn't make it. It's because they're dead too. Because of different consequences in his life. He knew that he was imperfect and he said as much. But God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our level of perfection. Praise God. God's faithfulness to us is not dependent on our level of perfection. God is faithful because that's who he is. That's who he is. That's his character. That's, that is part of his very nature. And notice that David tells us now about this covenant that God made with him. Regardless of whether he was perfect or not, he, God made an everlasting covenant with him. Look at as verse 5 continues, Yet, I love that word, Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. Now, it's not going to get any bigger, but here's the four things that he says that, that, that it is. It's everlasting. It's not going anywhere. And Jesus Christ is going to fulfill that covenant himself. He did. And he will sit on the throne forever and ever. Jesus Christ, he says that it's ordered in all things. You know, when God does something, he does it decently and in order. <laughs> and, and we can see that God had it ordered. What else is it? Sure. It's going to come to pass. It's, it's absolutely the promises of God are sure. And then David says this about the covenant. He said, this is all my salvation and all my desire. Even in his imperf- imperfect state, you know, he was forgiven by God. His, his sin was wiped away. God, God did see him as clean once again. But he's saying, this is all my salvation. It's God's word. I'm taking God at his word and I'm trusting him for, for my salvation. This is, this is it, it's, it, no one else is going to be swooping in and saving me. No one else is going to be swooping in and giving me an everlasting covenant. It's God. He is my salvation and all my desire. Because when God does something good for you, when God shows his goodness to you, and your heart goes to him in repentance and, and really, Lord, where was I? How, how did I get off? Lord, you are so good. He becomes all your desire. And that's where David is. He's saying, you are all that I desire. God has made some wonderful promises to us in Scripture and proven his faithfulness to us and us, uh, us over and over again. And he will be sure to complete all of those things that he's promised. So we got see God's faithfulness towards an imperfect leader. But lastly, I want us to see that God's warning, that God does have a warning to the ungodly. And when I say ungodly, I'm not talking about ungodly believer. I'm talking about the ungodly as in the unbeliever that does not trust him. And that's what verse 6 and 7 talk about. But the sons of Belial, 
that Hebrew word is not a proper name for someone. It is a word that signifies worthlessness and rebellion. The sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced. Again, this is more of that picture that's being given. Someone who's going to touch them is going to need to be armed. That Hebrew word there for the word fenced is a hundred and over 150 times in our, in our uh, uh, Old Testament of the Bible normally means full or to be filled with. But in 14 times that it's used in the, in the Old Testament, it, is, it, it can be used as to be armed with. And in this specific use of the word, that is what it is. It says, but the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and with staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. I don't know if you've ever seen a prickly weed come up to where you can't touch it. For those of you that were here just a few months ago, working in the back here, you know that we had some prickly weeds about yay tall and some other weeds that weren't so prickly that were yay long. And uh, those prickly ones you could not touch. Even with gloves, you couldn't touch them because the thorns would just go right through your gloves. What had to happen? You had to arm yourself with something. You had to arm yourself with a shovel. And you would dig it out, you'd throw it in a wheelbarrow, and I forget what we did with it. But <laughs> we just chuck it, <laughs> chucked it in the back there. Make it somebody else's problem. Uh, but here, the Bible says there's no use for them. There's no use for them. And, and, and with, with this warning to ungodly people, it's they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Now, it's a warning to the ungodly, but I want us to see here tonight that it is a sober reality to us as believers. There is a wrath coming for unbelievers. They will burn one day. And if we're not doing our responsibility, if we're not leading out in the fear of the Lord, if, we're, if the way we lead people is not with the fear of the Lord, if it's selfish, then we will be off doing our own thing and they will be burning and going to hell. And we won't care a lick about it. But here, the Bible says God's warning to, is, to the ungodly is that they are going to burn up one day. I want to make just two points of final application here tonight. As believers, we've escaped the wrath to come. There won't be any burning in hell for us. We can praise the Lord for that. There is, there is a sure word of God. There is a sure promise that he has gone to prepare a place for us. But a second point of application is that we can make the choice not to fear God. We can get caught up with those those prickly things. We can start touching those kind of people, hanging around those kind of people in our life and in our leadership, and it will lead to a life that is burned up and good for nothing. You may not burn in hell one day, but your life is burning up currently and will burn up before the judgment seat of Christ. That's not what this passage is talking about. I want to be clear here. I'm drawing a secondary application to the passage. It's talking about the ungodly. 
But there is a reality of the judgment seat of Christ where those things done in the flesh will be, those things done when they're not done in the fear of God, when they're not done properly, they will burn up as wood, hay, and stubble. I want each one of us to be prepared and get to the, that judgment seat with crowns, with, with precious stones to cast before the Savior and, and be able to say, as, as David did, you were the one that lifted me up on high. You gave me that. You gave me that opportunity, and I was able to fear God. I was able to show them that in some small way that you, can, you come first in my life. May God help us to have lives that are lived and focused on a proper fear of God so that those we touch in our daily lives don't end up burned. Let's pray.